2: When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to, Hello when, Diplomacy and welcome Fails. to when Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails Special on World War One Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails Special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluges. Britain goes to war. The 1916... To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails Remastered. This is the third part of When Diplomacy Fails' remastered look at the wars against the French, which was originally aired as a three-part special from the 25th of July to the 5th of August, 2012. Welcome back to the war! In the last episode we looked at the critical founding moments of the French Revolution. We saw the First Coalition take shape, only to come apart as the Dutch, Prussians and Austrians were all made to feel the pinch, Of this revolutionary new French state. As France turned in on itself with a series of purges, and the likes of Robespierre and his great terror was visited upon the French people, it seemed as though nobody knew quite where the revolutionary spirit would take France, now declared a republic and having executed its king. In the last episode we were also introduced to the figure of Napoleon Bonaparte, who led French forces in Italy and won a series of crushing victories though only in his early 20s. Soon, this young Corsican would become the greatest and best hope for the French Republic, but what the state didn't know was that Napoleon was determined to cement his own legend, and at the expense of their new republic, but with the ambition of bringing France to heights never before imagined possible. With the Treaty of Campo Formio signed with the Austrians in October 1797, France seemed well on its way there, so let's see what the following year had in store. I will now take you to the year 1798. But before I do that, a reminder that this podcast is on Patreon. And if you wish to support this podcast and get some pretty awesome gifts in return, you should go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, go to wdfpodcast.com and click on the Patreon banner. Patreon is arguably the best way to support this podcast and make sure that it grows to unimaginable heights. I would really, really appreciate it. And I'm sure you'll enjoy all the goodies coming your way, from extra audio content to exclusive merchandise that you can only get if you pay through the nose on the actual website. So yeah, okay, so let's get set into the episode. Thanks, guys, and enjoy. man does not have himself killed for a half a day or for a petty distinction. You must speak to the soul in order to electrify him. Napoleon Bonaparte France had never looked so dangerous before. In six years, led by revolutionaries and idealists, French armies had defeated virtually all of its enemies and accomplished what all the Louis of France had been unable to achieve throughout their collective rules. French borders stretched into Italy and Germany, while its enemies had been subdued and embarrassed by colossal French armies, composed of every able bodied Frenchman. During these times of war, a Corsican general had shot up the ranks faster than anyone thought possible, gaining stunning victories for revolutionary France, and securing its place as a supreme state on the continent. This general, Napoleon Bonaparte, was a personality everyone in France wanted a piece of, but by 1798, he was not even nearly finished yet. Napoleon had big plans. As a general, he did not have the final say, but such were his previous victories, reputation and following that the Directory, the now secure governmental apparatus of the Republic, listened and often approved of his plans. They had done so in Italy, with great results, and now Napoleon was developing plans to strike at France's last, most stubborn and most ancient enemy, Britain. William Pitt the Younger was wary of making peace with a France that had subdued practically all of Western Europe. Europe would be forever unbalanced, and Britain's power base at home and abroad could never be guaranteed, so long as France loomed so large and powerful in the European consciousness. The speed and ferocity with which the French Revolution had rampaged across the old order both fascinated and concerned many Britons. To some in Pitt's government, the issue of defeating France wasn't much concerned with suppressing the dangerous new ideas of the revolution, and defeating them to the European citizenry instead, as it was with the balance of power on the continent. Since the revolutions had begun, Britain had survived by a combination of naval superiority and a reliance on continental allies, but now it only had one of these things. Napoleon had defeated the first coalition that Britain had assembled, with Britain now the sole survivor. Austria, Prussia, Spain and others had been forced to make peace, while some, like the Netherlands, had been overrun and extinguished altogether, and now formed an integral part of the French state on its borders. Worse than this, others still, like Spain for example, had actually been persuaded to declare war on Britain and join the French in October 1796. The tables, so it seemed, had been radically turned since the first moves against revolutionary France had been made in 1793. Yet, it wasn't all doom and gloom in Britain. Pitt kept up his hopes for another coalition in the future, in spite of the losses. The ever-reliable Austria was embittered at its constant and severe losses and desired revenge, while Italian states such as the Kingdom of Naples were already tiring of French intimidation. Russia, that distant and often troublesome nation in the east, could also be relied upon should the circumstances allow, but no one was doing anything while the star player of France was on the scene when word began to filter back to Britain that an enigmatic, brilliant and successful new general in the person of Napoleon Bonaparte was commanding French armies in Italy and beyond, the reports were met with a mixture of intrigue and dread. The undeniable pull of the French Revolution was to some embodied in the person of Napoleon, the charismatic, serious but fair general who promised great things. When it was learned then that this man had left Italy and seemed tasked by the Directory with taking the fight to Britain, the question loomed over where France would send him next. It was only once Europe understood that Napoleon had landed in Egypt that some began to get restless. Perhaps the time had come to challenge France again and form the second coalition. The idea for the invasion of Egypt came much earlier to Napoleon. 1795 in fact, while he had been brainstorming with his comrades in thinking of a way to strike decisively at Britain. India was the obvious place to strike, it was a rebellious and naturally unstable part of Britain's empire, and it was also a relatively new acquisition to boot, with the French presence removed only a generation before, and Britain's total control over the native empires there not yet complete. The East India Company remained top dog in India, and continued to try and assert its control over the entire subcontinent, but native rivals, such as the Maratha Confederacy for example remained. Rivals which France could ally itself with on the understanding that these nations would fight alongside Paris for their freedom. It was of course a tempting strategy. The loss of India would surely spell disaster for Britain. She would be forced to send fleets far away to counterbalance the French attack, and British forces surely could not compete with their French counterparts on land, particularly with the strange relationship that Britain, India and the East India Company enjoyed. The problem for Napoleon was getting to Egypt. French fleets and seamanship would not be adequate, faced as they were with an enemy that specialised in naval warfare. So Napoleon knew he would have to try a different tactic, an overland invasion, something which hadn't been done since the times of Alexander the Great. This led Napoleon and his fellow generals to conclude that the best way to attack India would be from Egypt, through Persia and the Ottoman Empire, and down into the Far East Indian border. While this course of action may have sounded at least practical, it was also a risky and in many ways naive strategy for a number of reasons. First of all, Egypt, much like the rest of the Middle East, was under the dominion of the Ottoman Empire and had been since around the 14th century. Egypt was a more autonomous province of the Ottoman Empire itself, but the Turkish Sultan still regarded it as Ottoman territory, so any invasion of Egypt proper would likely require some kind of negotiation with the Ottoman Sultan and further French plans would definitely require such permission, and depend upon Ottoman hospitality. Second, Napoleon may have been placed in charge of the expedition by the Directory, but there are many others back in France lining up to take Napoleon's place. If he failed in Egypt, and it was quite possible he could since it was a risky strategy, Napoleon's very career could be over. Third, and this will become apparent later, by this point Napoleon's force of personality and legend were preventing any European-wide talk of waging war against France again. But as soon as Napoleon left, the situation in Europe could very well change, and a new coalition could be the result. Napoleon also considered that any moves made against Egypt from France would need a certain level of deception, since he was faced with the all-too-apparent reality of British naval superiority. So the creation across France of a fleet and the building up of French forces could not be concealed for long, and Napoleon knew this but if he could keep the British in the dark as to that force's purpose, then surprise and hopefully victory could still be achieved. John Jervis, the first Earl of St. Vincent, was sent the following orders by the British cabinet on the 29th of April 1798. The armament at Toulon, Genoa, Marseille and Corsica is represented as being very extensive and is probably in the first instance intended for Naples. This armament is in truth more likely to be destined for either Portugal or Ireland, for the former most probably, by landing somewhere in Spain and for the latter by pushing through the strait and escaping our vigilance, which, while you are occupied by the fleet at Cadiz, it is not impossible they may succeed in. By this we can see that Napoleon's hopes for deceiving the British had succeeded. They had no credible evidence as to where he was about to send his massive force. Napoleon was appointed to command the expedition by the Directory on the 5th of March, 1798, and while making his final preparations, he would likely have conversed with the Directory and others about the second pet project of the French government, that of Ireland. Napoleon would sail with his force for Egypt on the 19th of May, though, leaving the direction of that campaign to less capable men. Let's leave Napoleon where he is for the moment then, sailing off to Egypt, while I cover in brief some other things going on in Europe at this time. Britain was very wary of French plans for Ireland, as that extract I read demonstrated. Ireland was viewed by many throughout Europe as Britain's weak spot. Catholics in Ireland, the majority of the population, were still suffering under the harsh restrictions of the 1695 penal laws. The British government, chief among them William Pitt the Younger, was uncomfortable with the situation in Ireland, as he wrote to his wife in July 1798, with a tone that typically understated the gravity of the situation. He said, It is not a great thing that our Irish subjects resent our restrictions upon them so completely, and resentful subjects are potential pawns of a dangerous enemy. Pitt's opinions on the penal laws put him at odds with many influential people, including George III, the King of Britain. The question of how to treat Ireland and whether the Irish could be loyal to Britain at all were common themes of Britain's political debates at the time. It was hard to ignore their significant neighbour, particularly when Britain's enemies continued to see Ireland as the British weak spot. Despite the risks, the idea went that the penal laws were an inherently good thing. They held the Catholic Irish back from assuming any kind of office or amassing any kind of native power base, while Britain's Protestant Irish subjects excelled and built up a loyalist citadel in Ireland to guard against future invasion. In favour of the penal laws as many in the British government may have been, Pitt was not alone in believing that they did more harm than good. Surely it was better to treat their Irish subjects equally so as to not foster resentment and the sense of inequality? In fact, so sure of the injustice of the penal laws was Pitt that he would actually resign because of their contents in 1801 and of his sovereign's refusal to repeal them. Pitt could also argue with good reason that London's Irish policy frequently left Britain in grave danger, as the resentment fostered by the penal laws were not countered by the provision of enough soldiers to actually guard against whatever opposition may come to the fore. Events in Ireland were soon to spiral out of control, as the situation in Ireland became more and more desperate. As John Ehrman, author of The Younger Pitt, The Consuming Struggle, wrote, the need for troops was held in Dublin to be critical. The prospect of a French invasion had fueled savage uprisings. while the Dublin government claimed to have only 14,000 men collected and to require 5,000 more infantry, since service in the militia was deeply unpopular, as the previous riots had shown, and the recently embodied volunteers were disunited. But the situation in Britain was less than sympathetic to Ireland, since Westminster was faced with the prospect of invasion by France, and troops were spread thinly across the board. As ermine continues... The call was far from welcome within England, and the need to put home defence in order after the large expeditions to the West Indies in 1795 and the aid sent to Portugal in 1796 was felt. In the event, no further regular formations could be spared. Nonetheless, a further two cavalry regiments were located in March, with two more infantry units located in May and June. Early in the following year, the forces in Ireland stood at 7,200 regulars, 3,800 fencibles. 25,000 militia, and 40,000 yeomanry. But the augmented numbers did not meet the required circumstances, some of the troops were unreliable, and the Irish authorities still feared that they lacked the concentrated force. Fears of a landing by the French in Ireland were founded on many failed landings in 1796 and 1797, where only British naval skill and bad weather had saved Ireland from invasion. It was at this time that the separatist organisation, called the United Irishmen, began to become important. Professing the ideals of independence, though many members differed on their end goals, what the United Irishmen could agree on was the fact that Ireland's status quo was criminally unfair and that to judge Irishmen and women on their loyalties based on their religious persuasion was an infringement upon their personal liberties. To some in the United Irishmen then personal liberties were better found under the revolutionary ideals of the French, and we would be naive to think that the Irish never once learned of or considered the ongoing story of revolution against the status quo which was ongoing on the continent. Others were less concerned with revolution, and more focused on straight-up rebellion against the British crown and eventual independence for Irish citizens. Others still joined the United Irishmen out of resentment against the penal laws and harboured the desire to merely quash these restrictions on their liberties while still more Irish citizens desired the fulfilment of all three aims in some form or another. But while the United Irishmen drilled openly in the streets, and while seditious activity was rampant in Dublin and throughout the country, the position of the government at Dublin Castle was still believed to be salvageable, so long as no full-scale invasion of Ireland took place. Napoleon Bonaparte, of course, knew very well the British fears with respect to Ireland, but He understood the logistical problems involved in not just getting, but then supplying, a French force to Ireland once the invasion had taken place. The British Navy was everywhere, and Napoleon, recognising this, switched gears to focus on Egypt in 1798 as we already saw, though the idea for destabilising Britain through Ireland was not abandoned. In fact, plans were stepped up in France as Napoleon fought in Egypt. This brings us in a way to the Irish Rebellion of 1798 which was a disorganised and ill-conceived plan from the off. It had long been hoped that an uprising in Dublin would coincide with risings throughout the country but the movements of the Irish rebels were not coordinated very well and the result was that, although initial surprise led to some successful skirmishes, eventual British victory soon became a question of when rather than if. That being said though, A planned landing of French troops across various points of the Irish coastline was only rebuffed by British naval strength, or in some cases bad luck and similarly bad weather. With the Irish Rebellion put down in 1798 to cut a very long story short, all French eyes now turned to Egypt, where Napoleon had been acquiring his name for, at least in the British opinion, all the wrong reasons. Napoleon had defeated an Ottoman army sent to attack him by the Sultan at the Battle of the Pyramids, but his fleet had lost the Battle of the Nile to the British Mediterranean fleet. Such defeats had not made Napoleon's position in France any stronger, and instead political turmoil in France was increasing due to the pressure put upon it by the reforming of a coalition against France, the Second Coalition. 1798 was thus an eventful year in Europe, but it was for other reasons too, it had also seen the French establish another satellite republic, that of the Helvetian Republic when Switzerland was invaded and overwhelmed. Napoleon knew he would have to return to Europe then and prevent France from either collapsing or replacing him or both. He returned to France via rescue by an Admiral Brew in 1799 who brought him and some of his army back to Toulon whence the situation in Egypt became untenable. Though the Egyptian scheme had technically failed, Napoleon had managed to pass the failure off remarkably well, and he focused on the losses French arms had inflicted on the Ottomans, as well as the odds they had bravely faced, to talk up his so-called triumph. With Napoleon back on the scene, then, the real possibility of a France in better hands was realised. But Napoleon Bonaparte was not satisfied with the level of power he possessed in France in early 1799. He wanted to acquire more. On the 18th of November 1799, General, Napoleon Bonaparte, launched a coup which would tie his fortunes to France even more securely than before. The coup of 18 Brumaire, as it's now known, did away with the Directory, which had existed since 1796, and replaced it with the Consulate. This meant that, unlike all the other seemingly needless government changes in France, of which there had been about four between 1789 and 1800, this one had real significance. It meant that Napoleon had made his bid for power, now he stood not just as a general but as first consul of the French. And it meant that as well, while he shared power with two of his comrades, he held the most power in France and could rule by decree. The people of France seemed almost apathetic that yet another change in government had befallen them, as Arthur William Holland in his book French Revolution noted, A shabby compound of brute force and imposture, the 18th Brumaire was nevertheless condoned, nay applauded, by the French nation. Weary of revolution, men sought no more than to be wisely and firmly governed. Napoleon, in doing this, had set himself up to climb even higher in France, and although he knew he had to move slowly for fear of being perceived as a king, Napoleon's ambition prevented him from seeking anything less than rule over France. What was more, he wished to do it without needless institutions or governmental houses. But to do this, Napoleon knew he would first have to make his name yet again on the battlefield, defending France from the newly established Second Coalition. Britain, while Napoleon had been away on his Egyptian scheme, had persuaded Austria, Russia, Portugal and the Kingdom of Naples to join in. The Second Coalition planned on making inroads in Italy, Germany and Switzerland, and initially it was successful. But the Austrians lost the key battle of Marengo on the 14th of June 1800, which then drove them back towards the Italian Alps. This worried the Kingdom of Naples, and they were inclined to sue for peace after playing merely a cameo role in the coalition. Then the Austrians lost again at the Battle of Hohenlinden on the 3rd of September 1800, and this loss, being only 33 kilometers from Munich, caused the Austrians to also sue for peace. On a side note, it is worth mentioning the fact that victory in the Second Coalition is often credited to Napoleon and his victory at Marengo. It would actually be far more accurate though to point to the French victory at Hohenlinden, for which General Moreau was responsible as the real victory of the French. Marengo, while critical, was not the decisive or stunning victory that it was thereafter painted to be. So exaggerated were the statistics of Napoleon's victory that Moreau's far more impressive and decisive one is often forgotten in later efforts to class Napoleon as an even greater genius than he actually was, there could be no room for generals competing for the mantle of Austria's worst enemy. Regardless, the Austrians were determined to make peace yet again, this time recognising French gains up to that point in Italy and Germany, and also recognising the existence of the now numerous French satellite republics that surrounded the country. The Treaty of Lunéville was signed by both sides on the 9th of February 1801, and it signaled the effective end of the Second Coalition. France had been saturated with victory never before thought within its grasp. The incredible results of this essential year of campaigning had granted the French even more gains, and perhaps more importantly, it also received political recognition for its past gains and satellite states. With revolutionary France secure under its dictatorial regime, and with the French people beside themselves with fresh victories, Napoleon looked to up the ante even further. One of Napoleon's key policies at this point was associated with Russia. Russia had been a practical non-entity in the Second Coalition, and this was good news for Napoleon. He planned to make use of Russian dissatisfaction with a brand new departure in policy. In the past, the League of Armed Neutrality had caused immense headaches in Britain, and had been established by Scandinavia, Russia, and the Netherlands in response to perceived British naval aggression and arrogance in the 1770s and 80s. The British slights had not vanished by the time London attempted to forge numerous coalitions against the French, and a residual bitterness remained in the former armed neutrality states. With the Dutch and other former members of the League of Armed Neutrality pieced out by this stage, Napoleon developed the idea to resurrect the League once again. This came to a head only in early 1800, when Russia actually left the Second Coalition and sued for peace with Napoleon, and instead of simply sending the Russians on their way, Napoleon encouraged them to revive the League of Armed Neutrality for its comeback tour. This did not go down very well in Britain, obviously, as the only advantage Britain thus far had was naval superiority, and this was of course very difficult to achieve against a wider coalition of enemies. It was when Britain was facing down this news that the London government then felt forced to implement the plan for a pre-emptive strike against one of the members of the League, the Danes, since its fleet just happened to be the closest, Docked as it was in Copenhagen. This preemptive strike against the apparently harmless Danes might seem harsh to us, and the idea that the British would destroy the fleet of the Danes in order to practically force the neutrality might seem a bit over the top, but we have to put it all in context. The last thing that Britain needed was for the League to pool its naval resources and strike as one against her. Russia was especially aggressive during this time, trapping and imprisoning British sailors and blocking British shipping around the Baltic. The motives behind striking at Denmark are examined in C. Northcote Parkinson's joyfully triumphant book, Rule Britannia, when he writes, Emphasising the hostile purpose of the League, the Tsar detained all merchantmen in Russian ports, relying on the fact that he and his allies had, at least in theory, about 50 ships of the line between them. Had Britain agreed to the terms offered, the neutrals could have supplied all the trade which Britain had denied to France, bringing the blockade to nothing. Prime Minister Addington's government did not agree, and Admiral Sir Vincent advised a great stroke at Copenhagen, not because the Danes were foremost in the alliance, but because their capital was nearest and most vulnerable. Disagreements, of course, arose in Britain about the nature of what the Royal Navy was about to do, i.e. send a message to other members of the League by straight-up annihilating the Danes. In short, though, it worked. The Battle of Copenhagen was a success for the British, and was the scene of many famous feats carried out by Nelson and others. But it was in many ways a needless battle, since the main advocate of the League, Tsar Paul of Russia, was assassinated on the 29th of March, 1801. This meant that, although the Danes and British didn't find out until negotiating post-battle terms on the 3rd of April, the League was effectively over after barely a year in existence. Tsar Paul's replacement was Tsar Alexander, and he immediately switched his policy towards favourable lines with Britain, and he ended the tension between the two countries in the process. Denmark, for its part, agreed not to join any further leagues against Britain and to remain at peace with Britain for the next 14 weeks, though in practical terms, Denmark's naval capabilities had been all but destroyed. With the victory at Copenhagen, one could be forgiven for forgetting that France was Britain's enemy. However, with the resignation of William Pitt the Younger in early 1801, for reasons I have covered before, Britain's foreign policy was set to change. Lord Henry Addington, the replacement of Pitt as Prime Minister, and Robert Jenkinson, 2nd Earl of Liverpool as Foreign Minister, began to send feelers out to the same diplomats in France who had searched for peace with Britain originally. A French official named Louis Otto, who was the French commissary for British prisoners in London, As negotiations were underway it seemed unthinkable that Britain would agree to peace while France remained so powerful on the continent. Surely the act of agreeing to French peace terms or agreeing to recognise French gains on the continent would represent a great loss in the British camp. What would foreign powers think of Britain's acceptance of the new order? In the next episode we will see what brought France and Britain to treat together after nearly a decade of war and how the Peace of Amiens was the result.